All right, so uh, we're going to be Romans chapter 1, verse 8 is where we're going to start. Um, this section as Paul moves into this, I'm, I'm calling this Paul's pastoral heart. Because, yeah, we know he was an apostle. And he addresses that at the very beginning. Paul, an apostle of God. Servant. But Paul was more than an apostle in the sense that, hey, I'm here, I'm the authority, I'm writing you a letter, I'm telling you what you need to do, uh, here's the details. Um, apostle could be some, someone like we, we would think of as a general or an admiral. Um, somebody just gives the orders, makes sure everything goes right. Uh, usually uh, they have others working under them to help to um, support and uh, complete the work. And uh, we see a lot of that in the church. But uh, here we find Paul really communicating more as a pastor. And we'll see that all the way through this letter. And we'll, we, we can pick that up. He's not just interested in giving orders. And he's not here necessarily just correcting wrong doctrine. Yeah, there's some things wrong in the Roman church, and he wants to talk to them about that. But he's, he's doing it more in a, in a gentle manner than he is almost like in a rebuking or correcting manner. So this pastoral heart of Paul comes out in these verses. Let's read uh, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So there's just a lot in this, in this section that just reveals the heart of this man. He wasn't just a hard, efficient, choleric type one personality giving orders and, and making changes. Paul loved people. And that comes across in this passage. And what's interesting is he's, he's never met most of these people. Yeah, we're going to look at chapter 16 later, and there's about 30-some people there that he mentions by name. So he knows some of the people that are there. But most of the people in the church in Rome, he never met. Yet, he cares about them. And his, his interest is in helping them, what's he say in verse 11, to be strengthened or stabilized and to be encouraged. And I, I love the, the, the statement on being encouraged, the last part of verse 12, that we may be mutually encouraged or encouraged together by mutual faith. And what Paul is saying is, I need, I need you as much as you need me. There's things, that, there's things that each of us are called to do by faith. And we can do many things by faith. But there's times when I really need your help. I need your faith to stand with me. A mutual faith. Because sometimes I can go this far, but I, I need to go that far. And... And I shared this with my, my Sunday school class on Sunday, but uh, when I was in California on my way back from China, and I'd been sick there in Shanghai, and then I was left in the hospital, and Jonathan abandoned me in the hospital there in <laughs> L.A. Love Jonathan, but no. But um, doctors weren't sure what was wrong, but ultimately they finally decided that I'd had this... Uh, probably from E. coli, um, but my small intestines were twisted together and knotted, and this was like there's no way that they're just going to straighten themselves out. We're going to have to open, 
And when we do, then we're going to have to remove sections of your small intestine and, and all this stuff. And, man, I didn't want that. <laughs> I did not. I did not want that. And so I was believing and praying and standing. But Sunday morning, uh, the doctor came in early and said, you know, if this doesn't change by noon today, then we're going to have to do this surgery. And, man, I really didn't want that. And they were going to schedule it for Monday, but he said that was going to be their determining time. Well, I decided that morning, it was a Sunday, I decided I would watch the Grace Church service. So I turned it on, of course, because of the delay of time. And so I watched, it was a little after after noon at the time I watched it. The doctor had not come in yet. And um, I can't remember exactly the song. But Julie Edwards was leading, and she stopped kind of in the middle of the song, and she said, sometimes you need to just draw a line in the sand and say, this far, devil, and no further. And it was, I mean, those those words penetrated me. And it was like, wow, I needed to hear that so that was that mutual faith well by that evening everything had changed Monday morning they canceled the surgery they gave me the worst stuff I've ever had to drink in my life to replace the phosphate uh, potassium potassium that I was missing um, by 5 o'clock that afternoon, I was on a plane on my way home. And, uh, uh, boy, was I happy. Um, not feeling great yet, but I was home. So, sometimes we need that, that, that's a mutual faith. And what Paul says here is, I want to I come to you. Paul isn't there. I've heard people say, oh, Paul just wanted to go there because Rome was a rich church and he needed their offerings and he was going there. You, you have to read that into this. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I want to give you some spiritual gift and then I want to be encouraged together with you so that by our mutual faith we can accomplish more than what you would do on your own or I would do on my own. And just what a beautiful statement. So we're going to go back and kind of break down this whole section as we look at, at this heart of a pastor. A pastor uh, in, in the Greek is this, just the word for shepherd, uh, poimen. And, and a, a, a pastor or a shepherd is nurturing. He, he cares about the feeding and the, the, the growth of his sheep. And their health because of how they eat. So that's about all you can do to help uh, sheep be healthy is to give them the right kind of food. Take them to the right part of the pastures. Make sure that they're eating the right thing. Um, But a pastor also doesn't just nurture. He also corrects. Sometimes, you know, you got to get the rod out and correct the sheep are going the wrong direction, especially the lambs. Um, but if you can get the mamas going the right way, then the lambs will bounce around and follow. They don't want to be too far from mom. And so, you know, you, you lead the adults and the little ones will be coming along. It doesn't mean that you don't do something to help the little ones, but it's mostly making sure that mom is going in the right direction. And so there's that whole part of correcting then there's also protecting, and a, and a, a pastor's responsibility is, is to protect the flock, to make sure that nothing is coming in, that uh, the wolves are not preying upon the sheep, and that they're not scattering the flock, and that you know some uh, wandering sheep, sheep comes in there, a ram, all right, some wandering ram comes in there and tries to divide up the flock and take part for himself and and all those things so there's a protecting issue and and when you read through Romans as we go through we're going to see all of these things 
Paul is nurturing and feeding them. He's, he's giving them new insight. He's teaching them things they've never known before so that they can be, quote, spiritually healthy. He's correcting things. There's, there's some parts of their doctrine that's not right. But then there's, they've not had a, an apostle of, of the 12 there. They've had some people who are apostles, and he addresses them. But none of them had been in Jerusalem. None of them had been with Jesus. And so there's instruction that they need to receive. Plus, as we've already said, Paul received special grace from God to teach things that no one else was teaching. And so those were important things that they needed to hear to correct some errors. And then there was also protecting. And he'll take a stand against those who want to divide the flock, those who want to cause trouble within the flock. And so he's going to do all of these things. So the first thing we want to do is is identify uh, his audience. Paul is not shy about introducing himself. He's not shy about talking about his his past, his credentials. He's not shy about talking about the grace that God has given him and that God has appointed him into these positions. Um, Paul is quite comfortable with making those statements, though he does them from a a humble position, not an arrogant, prideful, looking down on people uh, position. And so uh, one of the necessary roles of a shepherd is that he's interested in the flock. I put this passage from John 10 there on your first page. John 10 verse 11 says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is hired and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep, and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. There's also wolves that come in bringing wolves with them to divide the flock and take some away from themselves. We'll see those here in just a little bit, a verse that Paul quotes. But this, uh, this thing, it says he flees because, listen to this, verse 13, he flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. See, this is the, this is the role that a pastor needs to take. He cares for the flock. And the hireling does not care for the flock. So he doesn't have any real interest in these who are his. Paul shows throughout this letter and, of course, his other letters, how much he cares about these people. Now, his other letters are all written to churches that he started. So Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, Galatians, um, Thessalonians. Then he writes to Timothy and Titus, Philemon, personal letter. But all of those are things that he's, he's done. This church he's never been to. Now, there's a handful, like I said, a handful of people, and we're going to go through chapter 16, and, and I have done some research and studied out some, some historical traditions and things, and the, the people that he's writing to there, it is an amazing group that is in this church in Rome. And so uh, that's going to be a later lesson. I'm not going to tell you what date I'm going to teach that, so you just have to keep coming. But... Um, uh, one man's one man's commentary on that section. He says, "When the roll is called down yonder, because they're not they're not in heaven yet. You know, we the roll is called of yonder will be there. How many, how many know that song? When the roll is called, yeah, good Baptists, you can all sing that with us. You know, and so the roll is called up yonder. But Paul writes to the roll that's called down yonder. They're down here. They're still here in this earth." And so uh, he writes to those who are there. And it's a, it, it's a great section. All right, so um, no pastor shepherd that today is called to lay down his life for the flock. That doesn't mean that there aren't pastors who are dying, you know, because they're ministering to their flock. But Jesus' statement there was about himself. A pastor today that is martyred, and those who are suffering under great uh, persecution, uh, 
their death can't save the flock. Jesus' death did. All right, and so his death was about saving the flock. And this was uh, something that no other person standing in the role of shepherd would be required to do. But in that same vein, there is sacrifice. And there is paying a cost. And there is being willing to do those things. And Paul was certainly one of those who was unwilling. So no matter what was going on, I don't know who keeps calling me, but I'm tired of it. Okay, so no matter who uh, keeps uh, ministering to these people, they've got to minister with a heart for those who are there. Now, again, chapter 16, we can pick that up in the people that are there. But Paul wants to be there, and he wants to be able to enjoy this with these people. Now, as much as we read how much desire Paul had to be with these people, chapter 15, we also know he has to go to Jerusalem first. It's it's something that he believes that God has given him to do. You know, and, and, and you can look at someone and say, well, I don't believe God called you to do that. You know, just keep your mouth shut, all right? Because you have no idea what God has called me to do. Rick Renner wrote a book called Dream Thieves. If you haven't read it, read it. Um, Because people come along to steal your dream because they can't see themselves doing what God has called you to do. And so make sure that you, you know, watch over your mouth when someone is sharing with you what God has called them to do. Now, that doesn't mean Paul didn't make some mistakes, and we could talk about that if we go to Acts chapter 20, um, 22. We can see some mistakes that Paul made when he got there, but it wasn't because he went to Jerusalem. It's because of what he did when he got there. But those uh, were things that, choices that he made. But as far as him going, he knew that this was what God called him to do. So here he is writing with this, this heavy heart, uh, I have longed to see you. I have longed to see you for a long time. I've been praying for a long time that God would open the door. I want to be there, but I got to go to Jerusalem first. Now, I think in Paul's mind, it was go to Jerusalem, get on the boat, go to Rome. He did not see the three years of imprisonment and the shipwreck and all those things that came in between. But how many of you have made plans that you know are plans from God? And then comes um, maybe not imprisonment, right? I pray not, but a shipwreck, you know, or something that delays you from getting to where you want to be. But you know what? If it's God's purpose, what's going to happen? You're going to get there. You're going to get there. And you know what? God can make that the perfect time. Because, again, God lives outside of time. He knows all those things. And even if it was a mistake that you made or a choice that you made that was wrong, God knows that. And he's already got a way figured back. Again, this was a statement that uh, Pastor Bobby Andy had made a number of years ago. Um, He was teaching out of Romans chapter 12. And uh, he made a statement about finding the way of God, the will of God, And he said, you know, you can't mess your life up so bad that the grace of God can't get you back to where he wants you to be. And I remember the story of Ken Copeland, and he was sharing about, you know, his life and mistakes he made in his early life and how he delayed his call from God and, and rejected it and backed away from it and was timid about it, Ken Copeland being timid yeah but um but he was talking about that compared to kenneth hagan who at the age of 16 he just you know okay i'm going to do this you want me to teach your people faith and i'm going to do it and he just bang went into it and so copeland said he was talking to the lord and he said god you know i i just i i can't imagine where i could be if i would have followed you at the age of 16 like Kenneth Hagin did 
you know, how far my life would be. And God said, you'd be right where you are. I just had to get you there faster. You know, so we can mess things up. We can delay things. But Paul was delayed by what he believed was God's purpose in his life. But when we talk about the shepherd, his interest is seeking the good of the flock. And this is what Paul wants. Now, here's some other verses, and um, I've got these in here. Uh, bottom of your page one, 1 Peter chapter 5, um, concerning the shepherd or the pastor. He uses the word shepherd as a verb. Shepherd the flock of God, or pastor it. I think you see in that as a, as a verb. Pastor the flock that is among you. Exercising oversight, so the pastor is to have the oversight. But notice that... The sideline, not under compulsion. Pastor it, but not because you have to. But willingly. So don't pastor like, I don't want to do this. I wish I wasn't doing this, but I'll do it if this is what God wants for me to do. That's, that's a wrong attitude. And you're not doing it for the flock. You're doing it because you can't get out of it. No, that's the wrong attitude. And you need to find a, a place where God wants you to be. But willingly, as God would have you. In other words, this is the way God wants it to be, as God would have you. Then he makes another statement. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So here's something. You don't do it for, for gain. And the gain can not just, don't think of it just being money. It can be influence. It can be prestige. You know, there are people, you know, but they, they pastor, you know, if if I could have a church of 10,000 people, I'd, I'd really be happy. But, you know, God's left me with a, a flock of, of 60. So if that's your flock, that's your flock. Pastor them. Yeah, but, you know, how much more I could do if I had 10,000 people and, and multiple campuses. And if God wanted you to have that. You'd be there. Obviously, he doesn't. So you're not. Okay, you know, I'll move on. But you're not doing it for shameful gain. I got. There's nothing wrong with pastors being paid a good salary. There's nothing wrong with them receiving uh, what is, is good and necessary and what they need in their life. Uh, but you don't do it for the money. And... Most pastors I know of would say, no kidding. <laughs> but there are some, obviously, or Paul or Peter wouldn't have written this <laughs> if there wasn't going to be an issue of some doing it for the money. But eagerly, verse, uh, verse 3 says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples. You don't push sheep, you lead them. You become an example. You don't domineer them over them. You're not being some oppressive authority over their life. You lead them. And you lead them by example. You lead them by model. And you live before them uh, an image for them to follow. That's the way of the shepherd. Acts chapter 20, another passage that goes along with shepherding. Pay careful attention to yourselves. Paul, Paul's speaking to the pastors at Ephesus. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer. So again, here, the pastor is to be the overseer of the flock. Notice the next phrase, I've got it highlighted, to care for the church of God. To care for them. Remember Paul said that he cared about the people and they cared about him. And so he says to care for the church of God. And here's the key, which he obtained with his own blood. You see all those sheep that God has given you? You're 60, you're 15, you're 3,000, whatever, all those sheep? Jesus died for them. Amen. Think about that while you're preaching. Think about that while you're preparing. Think about that while you're praying for them. Jesus died for them. They're not your sheep. They're his top of the page know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock 
And then from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. (laughs) Be alert. So here's the warning concerning those who are going to come. There are wolves that come from the outside. Now, wolves are not sheep. You got that? I know that's that's deep. It's really deep. Wolves are not sheep. You know, so we talk about, you know, sheep in wolves' clothing, but wolves in sheep's clothing. Um, these are wolves that come among the flock. They are not believers, and they're coming in to destroy the church. Uh, the church is under assault today by people who don't belong. There are people who have worked their way into churches, into leadership, into power positions, and they are there to destroy the church. And they're working at it. But there's another side. And then from among your own selves. Now, Paul is standing here looking at about 10 or 12 men who are standing here in front of him. These are the leaders of the church in Ephesus. And then Paul looks at them eye to eyeball and he says, and from among yourselves. Some of you that I'm looking at are going to rise up teaching perverted or twisted doctrines to pull people away after themselves. Wow. Now, I don't know about you, but I just think, you know, the, that the eye of Paul gazing at my soul would, wow, you know. But you know what? It happened. Paul went to prison. While he's in prison, things deteriorated in Ephesus. He got out of prison, went to Ephesus, and the church is in an absolute mess because of false teachers. So Paul says to a young man that's traveling with him named Timothy, here, you you take over. And I'm going to Macedonia where it's nice and people love me. And (laughs) after all, I just got out of prison. (laughs) So... So Paul left Timothy there and says, oh, oh, by the way, I'll write you a letter and uh, give you some instructions. Bye. <laughs> so Timothy inherited a church full of trouble. Um, I've, I've used this passage to teach at pastor's conferences, and if I ask for hands of how many took over a church that was full of trouble, um, usually it's about somewhere around 75%. Um, Timothy didn't cause the problem. He inherited it, and that's often the situation. Another statement about pastoring, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now, Paul's the one that said, be anxious for nothing. But yet, you know, it's easier to say that than it is to live it. And I love Paul's honesty. And in his own honesty, he says, you know what? I know I'm not supposed to have any anxiety, but I can't help it. When the people that I love and the people that I brought into the kingdom are being persecuted, some of them put to death, churches destroyed, people being lied to, he says, I'm sorry, it really, it really affects me. Paul cared about these people. And these are the Corinthians who sometimes said, hey, you know what, Paul, we, we don't like you. Your words are too harsh. And, and and you hurt us. How many of you have ever had children, or know people who have had, and their children look at them and says, I hate you. You know, kids say that. Kids say that. They don't, but no, most of the time they don't. And the flock can say that to the shepherd sometimes too, but you know what? Paul says, I still love you. Notice what he says in verse 29, who's weak and I'm not weak. You know, when I see you in your weakness, it weakens me. It draws strength away from me because I care about you. And then he goes on, who is made to fall? The word means literally to be pushed down. Who's pushed down and I am not indignant. Paul says, when people come in and treat my children like that, it really gets me up. Right, And so Paul cares. And then finally, Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Him, that is Christ, we proclaim. 
warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. My heart's desire is to present everyone mature in Christ. Is that going to happen? No, but I'm working at it. Notice what he says next. For this I toil, the Greek word means to sweat, labor intensely. I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul says, I am toiling to bring you to maturity. I'm not happy unless all of you are growing and increasing and becoming more stable. And I'm not going to be satisfied till you're all fully mature. Well, Paul went to heaven. <laughs> but, you know what? That's what he worked at. There's nothing wrong with having a goal that you can't meet, but that you hope to meet. Paul was okay with it. And then finally, when we talk about Paul's care for the flock, look at all the pronouns. And this, just in this one little section, verse 8 through 12, follow the pronouns. For all of you, your faith, I mention you, coming to you, to see you, may impart to you, to strengthen you, that we may be mutually encouraged. Each other's faith, yours and mine. Paul joined himself with these people. They weren't they, they weren't it. They weren't distant from him. Paul sees these people and he cares deeply about what is going on in their life. These people were God's purchase. And every pastor needs to see that. People that God has given you are his purchase, not yours. Now, besides this, Paul's not satisfied with just talking about his desire to be with them. He also wants to talk about his prayer for them. And, and here's something that happens in every one of Paul's letters. In the introduction to the letter, somewhere in there, he talks about how I continue to mention you in my prayers. I'm continually mentioning you in my prayers. One of my favorites is in Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And this is, this is one of the, the most, I think, most direct statements that Paul makes concerning his thanksgiving for these people. He says in verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. We, we who? Paul, Silas, and Timothy, who is maybe 17, 18 years old. We give thanks. He's part of this. Constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Say, well, you know, Paul's just using, you know... <laughs> fluffy language here he's just kind of building does it puffing it up you know whatever no the bible says every word is god breathed right paul would not have been allowed to write this if it wasn't true so did he care about these people was he praying for these people yeah constantly remembering you in my prayer remembering and here here's here's what i'm remembering he doesn't just say, hey, I'm thinking about you. No, here's what I'm thinking about. Listen to, listen to these. Remembering before our God and our Father your work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, he really loves these people. And you know what? This is a church that Paul had spent maybe six months raising these people from nothing to this state where he could write to them. And what does he say? Your labor of love. Love labors. Your work of faith. Faith produces. And the endurance 
of your hope. Hope endures. Isn't that beautiful? And now again, this is things I've used at pastors conferences, things I've used in teaching in China. These, these three things that God does, this is what he wants in his people, and this is what Paul gave himself to do. Why were they laboring in love? Just because they got saved? Or what? Because Paul taught them. He gave them an example. And so because Paul modeled this and because he taught it. Why is their faith producing? Because Paul taught them. They were unbelievers. Six months ago, they didn't even know who God was. Had no idea. But Paul gave himself to these people so that now their faith is productive for the kingdom. Is that, That's beautiful. And now what else? Their hope is what? Enduring. The Greek word for endure means to stand under the pressure. Because you have a hope, you'll stand under the pressure. They're being persecuted. Just don't talk about that later. Persecuted by your own countrymen. Some of you, by your own family. Who don't want you to be a follower of this Jesus of Nazareth, this Christ. You are, you're Jewish. What are you doing? You were pagan. You belong to the temple. You've destroyed our family business because if you won't sacrifice at the temple, you can't do business in the marketplace. What have you done to your family? Persecution. But they were doing what? Enduring. Standing under the pressure. Why? Because of their hope. Who taught them that? Paul. Paul taught them to love. Paul taught them faith. Paul taught them hope. He taught them to labor. He taught them to work. And he taught them to endure. There's so much. Why? Because Paul loved these people. Because he loved them. And so here Paul is thanking God in his prayers. Let's go back to Romans 1. So what does he say? I give thanks. In, in every one of the prayers, and most of them are the opening of Paul's letter. Some are toward the end. But most of them. And when he mentions the prayer, one of the things he always puts in there is giving thanks or thanksgiving. In every list of prayers that Paul gives, when he tells us about prayer, in his list of prayers always is the phrase thanksgiving. Paul didn't give thanks when he got the answer, he gave thanks, say it, before, when he prayed. He gave thanks when he prayed. Thanksgiving is part of your praying. Now, afterwards, you can shout for joy, you can give testimony, you can rejoice, but if you're waiting to give thanks until you get it, you're missing the point. Because Paul taught that Thanksgiving comes with the praying. And his thanksgiving, the Greek word for thanksgiving, eucharistia, right? It's in your notes there, eucharisteo. And it, it, we can see a word in there, eucharist. If any of you belong to some kind of a, you know, a liturgical type church, you know what the eucharist is. How many know what the eucharist is? Right, let me see your hands. You know the, how many have no idea what a eucharist is? It's the bread and the wine. That's the Eucharist. All right. So liturgical churches, that's what they refer to, the Eucharist. It's the Greek word that's used in 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about communion. That's the Greek word that's in there. So all they did is they took the Greek word. We get bothered by they're calling it the Eucharist. It's the bread and the wine. No, it's the Thanksgiving. Why, why does he use the word Thanksgiving? Because in the Greek language... The Eucharistia, in the middle of that is the word charis. Anybody know what charis is? Grace. You in Greek means good. Good grace. 
And what eucharistia means in Greek language is to acknowledge the grace that you have received and speak good about it. To acknowledge the grace received and speak good about it. So when we think of the body and blood, the bread and the wine, when we think of the body and blood of Jesus, we thank God for the grace we have received and we speak good about it. Give thanks. And so taking the, quote, communion is all about giving thanks. It's all about celebrating. He did this. The grace has come to us, and we are going to proclaim it. We're going to hold on to it. But Thanksgiving also has this this looking to the future, because if God did it in the past, then what? He's going to do it again. The God that delivered me is going to deliver me. The God that healed me is going to heal me. The God that provided for me is going to provide for me. The God that brought me out of Egypt is going to bring me into the promised land. So all of that fits together into this image of Eucharistia or Thanksgiving. So let's go back to our note then. So when Paul gives thanks for these believers, he's saying, I I remember the good that was done. I remember the things that have happened. And I remember all those things that God has done. But you know what? Because he's done some things, he's going to do some things. That's part of our thanksgiving. See, when I celebrate thanksgiving, I'm saying, God, you did this, and you're going to do it again. When you look at the harvest next week, our Thanksgiving meal, right? when you look at the harvest, just think, next year, more. Turkey and pumpkin pie, again. (laughs) Yay. Some people say, ugh. I love it. So anyway, so Paul has this, he has this attitude of this thanksgiving. It rolls around in his life. It's part of who he is. And Paul can't think of praying for people without giving thanks for them. Giving thanks for their church, giving thanks for their life, remembering the Thessalonians, their labor of love and their work of faith and the endurance of their hope. Paul says, I, I, can't, I can't get that out of my mind. So he says, I, I remember you in my prayer. The Greek word for remember, it's a word that you can't say. Mene manuo. Yeah. Mene manuo, to remember. What? That sounds, you know, that sounds like wrong. That sounds like almost like a word you shouldn't say. Mene Manuo. Because we don't like M and M's together. We like M and M's together. <laughs> but we don't like an M and an N as, as the beginning of a word. We, we don't know what to do with it. And then, then this word doesn't just have it at the beginning, it's got it in the middle. Mene Manuo. It's like, can, can we just say it once? Can we just change it? It's the Greek word for a memorial. For a memorial. When the Greek talks about the sepulcher where they put Jesus, the Greek word for sepulcher is mene manuo. Comes from that word. A place of remembrance. The stones that we erect, we just celebrated Veterans Day. Some years ago I had the opportunity to go to Arlington Cemetery in the fall. I was overwhelmed, just overwhelmed. And then to stand in some of those places and all you can see, these crosses, across these rolling hills, perfectly lined, everyone in a place. You know what those crosses are? Those stones are? Maneo, remembrances. There are remembrance. Because we look at those and we remember. Paul says, I make mention, I remember you in my prayers. 
Paul says, I've built these memorials in my mind. And when I think of you, I see this memorial. Your labor of love, your work of faith, the endurance of your hope. I see these things. And you know what? I make mention of you before God. I take that memorial and I put it in the face of God. I want God to remember you. Not that he doesn't. But I want to say that that is there. Because I prayed for you. And Paul does this. He builds these memorials not only for himself, but for God. So that as God looks out, he sees these Oh, Paul, Paul's busy. <laughs> Paul's got more stones up here than I know what to do with. Good, Paul, and Paul keeps bringing these people before God's face. Does God love you anyway, even if Paul wasn't praying for you? Of course he does. But you know what? When I lift people before God, he loves it. Because it opens doors of opportunity for him to do. And so sometimes we just say, remember so-and-so in your prayers. Do it! Build a memorial. So Paul uses this. Romans chapter 15, verse 5. Paul says, May the God of endurance and encouragement. And how do I I can't stop and preach? I want to preach. All right. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. Paul's praying for these people to, to live in harmony. The Greek word harmony is sumfuo, right? From which we get the word symphony. He says, I want you to live in harmony. I want you to be, you know, in a symphony, you got all these different instruments, but they make one sound. They're playing different lines, but when they're together, they make one sound. God says, that's what it is. I'm, I'm not trying to change the sound that's coming out of you, but what I want is that when we make this sound, it all comes to one in Christ. You're not playing in a different key. You're not going on your own rhythm. Everyone is flowing together. I want you to live in such harmony. He says, this is what I want. I want the God of of encouragement to grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ. That, the reason I want that, verse 6, is so that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's good when you as an individual glorify God. It's good when this person does and that person does and this person. It's good when we're all individually glorified. But when we come together with one voice glorifying God, that is a credible sound before the throne of God. And Paul says, I'm praying this so that together you may with one voice. Paul said, I'm praying this. So that you can have that. That's going to come up again. Top of page 3. Romans 15 verse 13. So this 15th chapter. He's got three prayers. In chapter 15. So here's chapter 15 verse 13. May the God of hope. Fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit. You may abound in hope. What? If he's the God of hope. May he fill you with joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. You know, he's, Paul says, I want, I want hope springing out of you. That's what the word abound means. Overflowing. I want people to walk up to you and say, you are a hope fountain. <laughs> Just being around you increases my hope. My expectancy, I, I wasn't believing for anything, but I can't help it. I'm, I'm in your presence. I come in your presence, and I, I just feel this hope. It sort of rises up in me. Paul says, that's what I want from you. I want the God of hope to fill you with all joy and peace. So he wants, he wants God to take care of some of the stuff in your life so that you have joy and peace. 
And then notice at the next phrase, so that. In other words, without the first part of that sentence, you can't do the second part. That's what the word so that means. It's a little Greek word, H-I-N-A, hina. All right, so that. I want God to do this in you so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So that you become, like I said, a hope fountain. That hope is just bounding out of you. Why? Because you're not trying to get it for yourself. You got it. You're filled with this expectancy and hope. Not because you're preaching about it. It just comes out of you. Well, God's going to work that through in your life. God has a way to change things for you. God has a way to work this circumstance around in your life. Let me pray with you. Here's, here's a scripture to build your faith on. Well, I, I've never had scriptures given to me to build my faith. Well, here, take this. This is, this is something from the Bible. You know, I, I get my Chinese cookies, and they don't always say, you know, helpful things. It's because you don't live by fortune cookies. But you live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So you give people a little, little things of hope, and you, you, the people come back and they say, you know, I, I just need to be around you. Today, I need you. Days past, I needed a stuffed animal. You know, my little buddy, my story, alligators under the bed. I had to think about squirrels. Squirrels can't do anything about alligators, but it somehow eased my mind. <laughs> but you know what? That's where a lot of people are. They got stuffed squirrels to deal with the alligators that are eating their life. What they need is the Word of God to get rid of the alligators. Don't feed them. Okay. So that prayers. I gotta gotta finish this section. So that prayers. So throughout Paul's writing, he has these prayers, and in the middle of the prayer, or at the beginning of the prayer, is this little phrase, Hina, H-I-N-A, so that, so that. In other words, I'm asking this so that you can have this. Right? So it's, it's like a mathematical equation. I want, I want this in your life, so this is what I'm doing. And I pray this so that you can this. Now, prayer is about us calling upon God to do what we can't do ourselves. Otherwise, there's no use for prayer. So prayer is saying, you know, God, God can do something about this that I can't do. He can do something about this that you can't do. But most people don't pray. But Paul prays. Now, commonly, we think people grow to maturity and people grow in their commitment through teaching or through choices that they make. And so people become mature through teaching. And I can give you lots of scripture that supports that. We need to be teaching so that people can grow into maturity, so that they can grow in stability, so that they can have security in their life. So we need to teach. God's people need teaching, and you need studying, you need reading, right? But Paul didn't leave it with his preaching. When Paul finished preaching, he went to praying. See, our common subject, our common way, is for us preachers. We pray before the service for God to give us the message, and we go out and preach the message, and we pray for the people, and then we leave. Paul didn't. He continued praying for the people. He prayed for the people to grow in maturity. Three prayers that I mentioned there about the middle of your page three. Ephesians chapter one, Ephesians chapter three, Colossians chapter one. If you go through there, 
I want you to circle the words that or so that. Just in your own Bible, I know if you've got a device, it's hard to do. But in your own Bible, somewhere, you've got a paper Bible. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17 through 21. Find the words that. Paul says, I'm praying this so that you might have this. What that means is if I don't do this, you don't have that. See, we think people only grow to maturity and they only come to the full knowledge of the things of God through our teaching. And so we, we want to take all this credit. You know, God, my teaching is so great. These people are growing to maturity. Wow, these are the most mature people ever um, because they've been listening to my teaching. You know, and the teaching is good and it's necessary. But I also need to pray for you. That not just that the message I just preached would come to bear in your life, but there's so many other things that God wants you to have. So that prayers, and by the way, they're all through Paul's letters. So if you want to really give yourself a project, go through Paul's letters and find all the little words that or so that that's in the middle of his prayers. And this was his example, and it was so much an example, middle of your, of your page, that there was a young man who followed him whose name was Epaphras. Now, this man, Epaphras, was from the city of Colossae. He was probably the pastor. He, he's called their minister. And so Paul mentions him in Colossians chapter 1, and then he brings him up again in Colossians chapter 4. And listen to what he says about this man. Now, this man is with Paul in Rome at the time that Paul writes this. All right, so Colossae is about 1,000 miles, about 1,200 miles away, all right, which by sea and land would take maybe a month to get there, all right? So this man's a long way from his congregation, but listen to what Paul says. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. He's here with me. Listen to what he says about it. Always struggling on your behalf, not on his, on your behalf, in his what? Prayers. prayers. In his prayers. He can't be there to teach, so he's praying. He's praying. You are so much on his mind that he wrestles. The Greek word struggle means to strenuously wrestle, to, to wrestle with an opponent that is, is equal to you. Maybe even greater than you. But you're wrestling to pin your opponent. You're wrestling to get the upper hand. He wrestles in prayer. We just kind of slough it off. You know, it's like, yeah, I've heard a prayer. No passion in it. No fire in your prayer. No tears, no emotion. Just, yeah, I offered a prayer. Servant always greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Notice the next words. So that. Why is he struggling? So that. Hina. So that, what? You may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. In other words, if he doesn't do this, you won't have that. So that, so important for us to minister for others. Pray for people's maturity. Pray for their growth. Pray for their stability. You say, no, they need to study the word on their own. They need to get it. You know, I can't pray anybody to maturity. Yes, you can. The Bible says so. Well, my preacher said not. I've listened to this teacher. He said you can't. I'm sorry. The Bible says you can. He's praying so that you may stand, what? Mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Oh, they got to pray on their own. They got to grow on their own. They got to study on their own. Yeah, they do. But you know what? They don't. So what am I doing? Pray. Verse 13, for I bear him witness. 
that he has worked hard. That's that Greek word, to sweat, to toil, to labor, to the pace of sweat. That he has sweated it out for you and for those in Laodicea and Eteropolis. Those aren't even his churches. They're across the valley. But Laodicea has a pastor who's lazy. His name is Archippus. And at the end of this section, he writes and he says, tell Archippus to get busy in the ministry. Do the work. Tell him to do his job. And by the way, read this letter to the church. Hmm. What happened to the church at Laodicea? 30 years later, they were lukewarm. They had no concern. Somebody did not do their job. I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea. He doesn't stop just praying for his own congregation. He prays for other people's congregation. Well, when's the last time we prayed for the church down the street? Okay, it's like you could have stopped before that. I didn't. Sorry. Paul's purpose in all of this is prayer after his teaching is fruitful. And by the way, the word that Paul uses for prayer in here, it's a Greek word, deomai, which means to pour out your heart. Scott, I don't know how you're going to do this. I don't know how you're going to work this out. I don't know how you're going to help those people. I don't know how you're going to get them through this, but I'm asking you and I'm believing that you will. Praise God. All right, so I'll have to take up from here in our next session.